Thank you, Patrick, for reading the Word of God. Everything rises or falls on leadership. That's true in the family, and it's also true in the church. The church, God's church, is an organism. Jesus Christ is described as the head. We are described as members of his body. There's an organic relationship. Our connection with Christ and with one another is described like an organism. But also, it is an organization. It requires structure. It requires organization where you have leadership. And so that's what we're talking about today. This is a very timely thing for us to talk about because this week we begin our new, um, new time of year where officers take effect. And so we have elders and we're honoring them this week. And then next week we'll be talking about deacons. And I'm really proud of the group of leaders and servants that we have in this church. Well, Paul wanted to guide young Timothy as he was Paul's representative going to new churches. And, you know, church would crop up. The, the, the gospel was spreading in the, in the world and, and people were coming to faith. And so they would gather as groups, perhaps a prayer group or something, but they didn't have any structure. They didn't have any guidance. And so Paul writes to Timothy. So Timothy, as he's going to these various new churches, can set up leadership, give it organization, give it guidance to set it on the right path. So Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work or noble task. Question, what is an overseer? Sounds kind of like what you might find on an online game or something. <laughs> what is an overseer? Well, the New Testament includes various words for church leadership. Um, words like elder, the Greek presbyteros. You can hear Presbyterian in that. It referred to a person who was older chronologically. You can tell that, for example, in that it describes them as having children, not a young person. Somebody who has children. Whereas elder speaks of the man. Overseer describes his function. Overseer is the word episcopon or episkopos. You can hear episcopal in that. And this describes his function. It's made up of a compound of two words, um, skopos, for you hunters out there, you can hear the word scope, something that you look at or look through. And then epi means upon. So this is somebody who oversees. It describes what he does, you know, his function in the church. And it says he desires, he longs for, he sets his heart upon a good work a noble task. 
that of leading the church. Now, while his desire is good, Paul gives Timothy some guidelines in selecting the leadership so that it winds up being good for the church. He sets up checks and balances to make sure that this is a good process. So Paul begins with above reproach. A pastor or elder is supposed to be above reproach, meaning that he should possess character that goes well above anything that would require rebuking him, whether it be in the family or in the church or outside the church. There's not to be even a hint of scandal or inappropriate behavior that would bring shame to the church. So this word means above reproach, uh, it means irreproachable, never caught in doing wrong, and this was interesting, not arrested. Now, what if in his teens, he does something wrong? What if he breaks and enters with a purpose to steal? And he's arrested, so he has a record. But then, 40 years later, he's now a Christian. He has a good reputation with everybody he knows. In his work life, he's irreproachable. He has a quality of life about him that people respect. Is he qualified to be an elder? I believe he is. What Paul is writing about is not talking about what happened years and years ago. Because let's be honest, almost all of us have a past. What he's talking about is the quality of life when this man aspires to be an elder. What is his quality of life at that time? And does he have a recent record that he can run on, a recent record that is one above reproach? Those things that follow after this describe how to be above reproach. So everything that follows, all these qualities that follow, follow under this umbrella of being above reproach. For example, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? You would be surprised at how much ink has been spilled on this one issue. Basically, husband of one wife means uh, he meets the requirement of monogamous fidelity. I'll explain that in a minute. Some other interpretations which good people have held include these. He must be married. In other words, he can't be a single person. Uh, The Sanhedrin, in times of old, you had to be married in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So this would seem to exclude single people. Let's think about that for a minute. The Apostle Paul is writing this. The Apostle Paul is single. (laughs) He says in one point that He thinks under the current uh, tribulations that a church is going under, maybe it would be better for single people to stay like he is, stay single. Now, is the person who is 
God chosen to write down the qualifications for an elder, is he not qualified to be an elder? I don't think that's the case. He's an apostle. We'll go with one more, okay? And I hope you single people will be encouraged by this. You are not a second-class citizen. I'll show you why. Jesus Christ. Never married. Was Jesus Christ not qualified to be an elder in his church? (laughs) No. Another view. He must not be married to two wives. And we can understand this. Polygamy was a common practice in that day. Some men had two wives or four wives or had a concubine or any variety of those things. Another view is that he must never have been married before being married to the woman that he's married to. And good people hold all these views. Now here's where I fall on this issue. This phrase, the Greek literally is one woman man. Mias gynaikos andra. One woman man. It's talking about not a history. It's talking about a quality of life. It's talking about what he is like now. Not speaking about the past. And we can understand this. A one woman man is devoted to one woman. His wife. He is devoted to her. He loves her. He is faithful to her. If an elder did not fit that quality, imagine, you know, he has got another woman on the side. He is breaking his wedding vows. He is breaking the vow he made before God. What kind of elder would he be? No, he needs to be faithful. He needs to be a one-woman man. Next, self-controlled. I love it that sozo, the word for salvation, is included in this. He has a saved mind. He has control. Um, Speaks to a person not given to impulses. And how important is that for a person who's going to guide the church? He's not given to impulses that would lead the church in the wrong direction. The next one, sensible. Sensible. You like the picture I have up there? (laughs) I think it's sensible to drink coffee in the morning, okay? (laughs) I'm more sensible after I've had a cup. (laughs) This word means always ready and willing to learn. A student of God's word who knows how to apply it to life. You think about Apollos. Apollos went... um, on, uh, he, he started teaching, but he didn't have the whole revelation of the New Testament. So he was teaching some things that really needed to be updated. And um, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, husband-wife uh, team, they befriended Apollos. And they began to guide him into a more full understanding about Jesus Christ. So he was sensible. He was willing to listen. He was willing to be taught. He's willing to learn more. He's willing to take that and apply it to his life and his teaching. He's sensible. 
Now, the next one may get me into trouble. I hope not. Respectable. Respectable. There's a picture of a politician up there. If you know me, I almost never get into politics. But when I did a word search for images for this PowerPoint, I looked under respectable, and this politician popped up. And I'm going to say, what I know about him, and there could be things I don't know, but what I know about him, he is a respectable person. In fact, I'm very proud that he is a member of an EFCA church. We're a member of the EFCA church, the Evangelical, the Evangelical Free Churches of America. And, um, and so is this individual. And he, I believe, demonstrates respectability. This word means, uh, in regard to society, being good, proper, or correct. Respectable is the word cosmion, orderly, decent, modest, well-ordered, from the word cosmos. God created the cosmos. He created the universe with order. And this person has learned to order his life in a good way. I've known some people who did not have an orderly life, and often it came back to bite them. Other people I've known have sought to order their lives based on the Word of God and a close fellowship with our God. And their lives have been good lives. I couldn't help but think about a friend I know. His name is David. I first met David when I was a youth pastor in another church. And David was kind of the Pillsbury Doughboy. Kind of plump. But a delight. Everybody liked David. And uh, he had been uh, in Columbia with his family just prior for a couple of years. And he was fluent in Spanish. And so when we, you know, a group of adults took all of our teens to Mexico to do work with an orphanage. We did things like we built a baseball, baseball diamond. We, uh, we built an eight-foot-wide um, portico around a new building they had just built of concrete. We, um, we built picnic tables and more. So we would go repeatedly, and we'd get David, and any time you know, a problem came up, and we didn't speak Spanish, and the Spanish we were working, people we were working with didn't speak English or much, and so we'd go, Where's, where's David? Get David over here. We need him. And he would come and he would save the day. <laughs> well, when he got into senior high, a Christian coach challenged David to uh, join the football squad. And he did. And then he challenged David to become physically fit. And he did. In fact, by the time he was uh, in his senior year, he had met and exceeded the coach's challenge to bench press 300 pounds. So he had, he had really transformed. Well, he graduated, and we didn't see David for a few years. And David began to go to parties where there was drinking, and a lot of drinking. In fact, some of these parties got out of hand and wound up in the newspapers. And then 
David was hired by a bar to be a bouncer. And then it happened. David got off work from the bar one night. He's traveling in Arlington. He's headed home on a major freeway. And somehow, a car coming from the opposite direction of his truck jumped the median and crashed head-on into David's car. It was a miracle that nobody was killed. But David was in a bad way. When he woke up the next morning, he was in bad shape, and his leg was extremely crushed. Well, David asked them to call me. And so I went to see David. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Mark, I know that God picked up that car and threw it into mine. He understood that he wasn't walking with the Lord, and he understood that he was being chastened by God. From that point on, he began to get back into his Bible. From that point on, he got into Christian fellowship. He got back into church. And from that point on, God began to bless him. He was at that time working at a hospital. He was kind of an orderly, just wheeling gurneys from room to room, probably a minimum wage job. But he met people. He met people that worked with a medical company, and they liked David. They liked what they saw. And so they hired David to be a medical sales rep. Do you know what those guys make? And eventually, they hired him to be their um, marketer, their marketer. He did the marketing for this whole company. And God also brought a young woman, a Christian woman, into his life. They dated. They got married. They now have three kids. They have a beautiful family. That's the kind of orderly life he's talking about. It's not saying somebody never messed up. Because like I say, there are a few of us few of us that would qualify. But when this person is looking for an opportunity to serve, is he qualified then? Is he a man of character? Next, hospitable, friendly, literally welcoming to strangers, loving strangers. His home is open to the saved and to the unsaved alike. It's a warm and cozy place to be. It's a place where you want to be. Showing hospitality is a beautiful thing, and it highlights the love that people have for one another. I think about it, you know, a couple months ago, we had Mihai and and Elias and Miriam, uh, missionaries from Kosovo that came here. Mihai had been here before in 2018, but the other couple, this was their first time. And many of you reached out to them. Many of you opened your homes to them. I know uh, Tom Hillegas, who teaches our Wednesday night Bible study, had them in his home for weeks, and just a beautiful thing. And they raised support. Many of you showed kindness to this couple. That is a good quality. Hebrews 13, verse 2, 
is an amazing verse in this regard. It says, let us not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Back in biblical times, somebody would offer hospitality. And the scriptures say that some of them, unbeknownst to them at the time, were actually entertaining God's angels. And after all, doesn't God send angels as ministering spirits for those who are his chosen? By the way, could God do that today? Oh, I just happened back then. It could never happen. Wait a minute. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Could he do this? So that's why it's written for us to encourage us to be hospitable, reminding us that it is even possible we might be entertaining God's messengers. Wouldn't it be neat to get to heaven and find out, hey, you know that time you opened this home for this guy? He was actually an angel. Pretty amazing. Next, an able teacher. It might be up here on the platform, but it does not have to be. It doesn't say he have to, has to have the gift of teaching, but nevertheless, he has to have an ability to be able to learn God's word and sit down with somebody. It could just be one-on-one, -on -one, but sit down with somebody and just explain to them how the word of God relates to our lives. An able teacher. Commentators sometimes point out that this set of characteristics seem to be divided into two. Those things that we have just covered are the positive things. Things like hospitality, things like um, um, able to teach, other things that are positive qualities. But now he gets to the things that you don't want to see in an elder in your church. Here are some of them. Not addicted to wine not dependent on wine, literally not staying near wine. You know, those days you might have uh, entertainment set up and you have the food over here and you have wine at this, this table and that person, he doesn't bother with the food. He just stays right there at the wine the whole time. What kind of effect is that going to have on his personality? It does affect us. One thought on this, it's not just wine. This could relate to any addictive substance. It could relate to various kinds of alcohol or anything that's mind-altering or anything that's addictive. They didn't have LSD in their day. Meth was not a problem. But the principle of anything that would cause somebody to get high, that's not a good quality. Now, there is a caveat here. I think it's possible to push it this farther than what it says. Paul instructed Timothy not only to drink water, but to also drink a little wine. And the Lord Jesus made wine for a wedding when the wine had run out. It seems to me that the New Testament describes trying to avoid both extremes. 
One final caveat is if you might feel the freedom to drink wine with a meal, say, but you're with somebody that you know has a problem. There are people who can't stop at one glass and have to get drunk. And for people like that, we need to be exercising restraint to love our brethren in such a way as not to cause them to be tempted. Next quality, not a bully. And I kind of see a progression in thought here from being addicted to wine to being a bully. This speaks of someone who's violent, a striker, contentious person, or a brawler. You know, back in the olden days of lumberjacks, uh, there literally were men, lumberjacks, who would put a chip on their shoulder and dare people to knock it off. They wanted to get in a fight. They wanted to prove how tough they were. And even today, we still have the saying, you know, he's got a chip on his shoulder, referring to a contentious person. You don't want that kind of person on the elder board or in leadership in the church. Even if they meet all the other qualities, this one quality would disqualify them. And so, not a bully, but gentle, mild, forbearing, fair, reasonable, moderate. In contrast to the bully, these are peaceful people, not looking for a fight. And by the way, an elder needs to be able to take criticism and listen and judge fairly. Not quarrelsome. You know, the church at Corinth had a problem. They were a contentious church. They quarreled a lot. There were divisions in the church, and Paul said, I've heard about it. He says, some of you say, I am of Paul. Paul didn't want them to be of Paul, especially when it was trying to prove that they were superior. Some said, I'm of Apollos, who's by now a respected teacher. Or, I'm of Cephas, I'm of the chief of the apostles, I'm of Peter. And then there was one more group. And I think they thought they were more spiritual than everybody else. We're not of them. We're of Christ. In other words, we're the only ones who are right. (laughs) The church at Corinth was probably the most carnal of all the churches. And so he rebukes the idea of being quarrelsome. You know, I've seen this in a church, and it's not pleasant. At a previous church, there was a man who was always trying to get appointed to the elder board because he wanted to be in control. He wanted to tell everybody off. And you just tried to steer clear because he was a difficult guy to be around. And every time we'd have a church-wide meeting, the church had about 400 people, everybody to be assembled, and there was a time in the meeting for people to come forward. There was an, a microphone, and they could share their concerns or voice opinions. And every meeting, this guy would hop up, and he'd head for the microphone, and you'd just go, oh, no, not again, as he would begin to blast somebody or some group within the church. You don't want quarrelsome people 
leading the church. And when people challenge elders, these good men don't shrink away, but they're able to listen and evaluate, and if necessary, correct the person with gentleness. Not greedy is the next one. Free from the love of money. Not a Judas-like attitude. Remember what Judas' particular chosen function within the group of disciples, 12 men, was? He held the money bag. Yeah, why did he do that? Yeah, take money out of the money bag and put it in his own pocket. And he betrayed Christ. What did he get for betraying Christ? 30 silver. Not being like that. Jesus addressed this in Luke 12. It says this. Then he, Jesus, said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus adds, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves and is not rich toward God. There is a, a couple that I know that I have seen this bring tragedy. This young man was destined for greatness. Very capable. He's a visionary. He was a leader. He was a go-getter. He went and pursued a THM at Dallas Seminary, the highest degree for preaching, and he graduated. But not just that. He had a beautiful young wife. Very attractive, vivacious, pleasant. And not only that, but she was a gifted vocalist and piano player. This was the dream team. He could go to any church that was looking for a pastor and instantly get hired. He had the degree, he had the ability, he had a wonderful wife. What's not to like? But guess what he did? He didn't do that. He said, I want to get rich. I want to make a lot of money, then I'll serve the Lord. And so he didn't serve the church, you didn't see him at the church. He began a series of business ventures. He wanted to be an entrepreneur. He had dreams. And he did. He started a vitamin and supplement company. This is back when this was relatively new. He was really on the forefront of the wave. 
And he ignored everybody and everything and only pursued this. And not to mention he ignored his wife. He was never at home. You can guess what happened. The marriage ended. He was disqualified from ministry. And his fledgling company went bankrupt. Because of his greed, he lost everything. Next, one who manages his own household competently. This word speaks of to stand before, to preside over. This person has the ability to guide his family. And next, having his children under control with all dignity. You know, honor, gravity, seriousness. It is better to have a person who has learned responsibility for others, namely his family, to lead the church. Imagine someone who has learned to guide others with God's wisdom based on his word. That person who has learned to supervise on a small scale will be better prepared when that greater responsibility comes along, namely to lead God's church. And verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? I'm reminded of a, another situation that illustrates this. A particular man that did not do what he needed to do. Uh, a family. I was a youth pastor in the same church. And we were kind of doing a car rally, and we were uh, picking up teens and going to a particular event. And so uh, I'd already picked up some teens, and one of them said, hey, there's, there's a girl. She doesn't go to our church, but, but she's heard about this, and she wants to go. Could we pick her up? Sure. So I drive to her house, but before I can go in and meet her parents, she comes out and gets in the car. And so I, you know, her parents don't know me, don't know anything about us. I thought it was appropriate. Would you like me to go and meet your family? No, they're not home. Okay, would you like for me to call them and tell them, you know, where we're going to be and what time you'll be back? And you know what she said? This 14-year-old girl, she said, no, it, it doesn't matter. They don't care when I'm, you know, where I go or how late I'm out. You see... That family had not learned to guide responsibly. William Hendrickson wrote this. The so-called progressive idea of permitting the child to do as he pleases finds no support in Scripture. But though authority must be exercised, this must be done with true dignity. That is, it must be done in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for the child to obey. That his wisdom makes it natural for the child to obey. And his love makes it a pleasure for the child to obey. Well, the principle is from the lesser to the greater. Learn how to manage on a small scale, namely in the family. And then be prepared to take on a larger role leading God's church. Next, he must not be a new convert. 
Uh, newly planted is the idea here, young convert. Sometimes Christians want to be popular with the world. Maybe you've seen this, I have. You know, some um, music artist, some TV star, movie star announces that they have just become a Christian. What's the first thing somebody wants to do? Push them forward. Hey, this person is now a Christian. See, you'd want to be like this person. What could go wrong? (laughs) He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He's a beginner. He's not mature enough to handle that responsibility. He's a novice. Literally, the Apostle Paul says, not a neophyte, not a young planted plant. Choosing a neophyte may have disastrous results for him and for the church. Lacking the time required to grow, he can be blinded by conceit. Pride comes in. He falls and the world mocks. And he falls into the condemnation of Satan himself because in his pride, though he sought a high position, prominence, he's brought low. good illustration of this is the Apostle Paul. He was a man with vision and dreams, but he was on the wrong path. And then he meets the risen Christ, and it transforms everything. But did he immediately start going out on those missionary journeys for which he is so famous? No. Do you know how long it was before he went on his first missionary journey? About 10 years. He was prepared by God for 10 years before being used in a significant way. And then he started those missionary journeys and God used him to turn the world upside down for Christ. Maturity takes time. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among the outsiders. This word is the word for witness or evidence. His life has to demonstrate something to the outsiders. Think about that. The idea is is those who are outside, those who don't know what faith is about. They don't understand Christianity, but they're looking at you for an evidence that it's true. The NET Bible translates this. And he must be willing, he must be well thought of by those outside the faith so that he may not fall into disgrace and be caught in the devil's trap. Caught in the devil's trap. That person does not have a favorable testimony who nevertheless is selected to be a leader of the church may easily fall into disgrace. If those whom he does business with hear that this guy has been selected as a leader of the church, what are they going to do? You know, maybe they, uh, they come to his shop on Monday morning and they say, what is this we hear? You <laughs> have been selected to lead the church? You? 
not only are they going to mock, what's he going to be tempted to do? If he's getting away with stuff and yet he's selected to be a leader, he may think to himself, well, if I can get away with what I'm doing now and, and still be selected to lead the church, I can get away with anything. That's not a good situation. William Hendrickson talks about this and he says he'll fall into the devil's snare, the devil's trap, be under his power. Don't want that. Sum it up. So select men with good reputation, even with those outside the church. Then it will be a blessing to him and to the church. So how does this relate to our church? The Bible doesn't set a select number of elders for the local church, but there is always a plurality, always a multiple number of elders. In our church, we have seven. And I'm going to call their names, and if you guys would come forward down here, um, and we're going to kind of ordain you again, and Dick Emery is going to pray for you. So as you hear your name, if you will come forward. Gary Ray. Gary is our worship pastor and has been an elder for many years. Myself, Mark Pyland, Duke Clark, Jim Johnson. Jim is away. Actually, he's in Houston. He is ministering to pastors at a pastor's conference. He let me know that he's going to be teaching eight hours. So we'll give him a pass today. <laughs> Zach Lee. Thomas Lane, who has served for many years as our church chairman, and Mark Hawkins, who is our new church chairman. Dick, will you come and pray for all of us? It's on. There we go. Father God, I want to give you praise first off for these people who are willing to serve you, to give of their time, their energy, and just willing to say, yes, I will serve the Lord in this capacity, a capacity of responsibility, a capacity of joy, and yet trouble as they deal with problems, as they deal with things that come before them. But I thank you for them. I thank you for their willingness. I thank you for their heart. I thank you, Lord, for their qualifications. I thank you, Lord, that they are believers who trust in you, who know you, and know your word well. So I pray that you'd give them wisdom. Wisdom is a trait that all men desire. I pray, God, that you'd give them wisdom as they deal with the agenda that comes on their plate from month to month how to handle situations that come before them, how to make decisions that glorify God, how to make decisions that promote the word through our local church. I pray, Lord, you give them unity, another very desirable trait that's going to be required when you have seven people of seven different minds and maybe seven different thoughts from time to time. But yet they got to come together with unity to make decisions together that are promoted to the church as a unified group of believers. So I pray, Lord, you give them unity. 
with the Word of God and with the congregation and within themselves as they meet together to handle the agenda that's on their plate. The other thing I pray that you would give them mostly is faithfulness to the job. May they, Lord, stand faithfully for you, your word, and to the job that they have agreed to take on. Will not be simple, will not always be pleasant, but I pray that you would give them faithfulness. Thank you, God, for these people, for these men. Thank you, Lord, for our church. Thank you, Lord, for your guidance in the past. We look forward in the future as we go into this new year that you would provide all things that we need to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. So I give you praise for them. I give you thanks for this opportunity to share their lives before our congregation. I thank you, Father, that you have provided for us again. And I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dick. These men volunteer their time. They are men of character, and they serve with distinction. Can you express your appreciation to them? You guys can be seated. Last thing. What does this mean for you? You may have noticed, this is not a list of job responsibilities. This is a list of character traits that are to be true, not just of Christian leaders, but all Christians should be maturing towards these things. So these are a good list for you to evaluate your own lives. I want to encourage you to take this list. You've got the bulletin. It's on the back. And just pray over that and ask God to show you how you're doing, where you need to improve, where you've done well. Gene Getz, who more than anyone is my mentor and my pastor, was teaching at Dallas Seminary, and he had a group of students, and they were going over uh, this list of qualifications. And he printed it out, and he handed it out to all the students in the class. These are people preparing for ministry, and he said, I want you to evaluate yourself. On a scale of one to seven, one being the least and seven being absolute perfection. And so he handed them out. He gave them in time to hand it back in. And when he got back in, he said, I want to mention to you, you know, this is, um, this, is, this is a great list, but nobody fulfills all these things perfectly. We all have room to grow. And isn't that true of us as well? We all have room to grow. I do. And when he got that back, um, some of those students had actually given themselves all sevens. <laughs> That's not reality. None of us are perfect. We all have room to grow. And so let's strive to be the best people, the best men, the best women we can be for Christ. Father God, that's a high and holy challenge. That's something that we need to evaluate. We need to come before you honestly and talk to you about because you're our Heavenly Father. You know everything about us and you want to help us to grow. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you don't demand absolute perfection because nobody fits the bill there except for Christ. But Father, you want us to begin where we are
and take honest steps to grow in Christ. And Father, we know we can't do it on our own power. We need his power and the fact that Christ indwells us. May his life come out through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.